We are continuing our study through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are this morning, of course, continuing through John chapter 12. So let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we have eyes this morning, and we're thankful for those eyes, but we pray that you would open our eyes that we may see. We have ears this morning, and we thank you for those ears. We pray you'll open our ears that we may hear. And Father, we know we have hearts this morning, and we thank you for giving us those hearts, and we pray that you would open those hearts to hear your word today. Father, this means that we come full circle to recognize that we have your word only because you've given it to us. And we can understand it only because you allow our understanding. But Father, you desire our understanding, and you tell us that. So this morning we come to you and ask that you would show us all that you would have us to see in this text. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Of the four Gospels, one of the privileged characteristics of the Gospel of John is that it gives us a good deal of... uh, of information into the intertrinitarian relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We actually have dialogue in this intertrinitarian relationship. We, we come to know what is perhaps our greatest privilege to know. And we need to think about this theologically for a few moments. What is, what is, the, what is the greatest privilege of knowledge that we have? Well, of course, it's the knowledge of God. That's the most privileged knowledge that we have. And God has implanted a knowledge of himself, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, in all of creation, such that there's no one without excuse. There's no one who's going to be able to say that he or she did not receive revelation of God. And besides that, it's inside the human being. That's a part of, of Romans chapter 1. A part of God's revelation is the, the, the structure in which he has made the human being in his image, the only creature able to know him. And that's why every human being worships something or someone. But the greatest privilege of all is our knowledge of what is so far beyond our understanding that we we can't even imagine, and that is the reality shared by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, just realize for a moment, we we have no access to that at all. We, we We have no right of that access at all. This is where Romans chapter 11 speaks of God being inscrutable, his ways being, you know, past being found out. But in the Gospel of John, we have actual dialogue that gives us precious insights into the relationship between the Father and the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, which is coming in the Gospel of John uh, in a defined New Testament revelation. But, but at this point, let's just consider the Father and the Son. Now, in the Gospel of John, the classic text for this relationship is going to be John chapter 17, which is usually referred to as a high priestly prayer of Jesus. Actually, we could just call that the Lord's Prayer, but we call instead the prayer Jesus gave the disciples the Lord's Prayer, and that's fine. But, uh, but the Lord was not saying that's how he prays in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount. He was, he's saying how the disciples should pray. We find out how Jesus prays by looking at his own prayers to the Father. And uh, the the largest and and most significant of those is the prayer just before his passion and crucifixion in John chapter 17. But here we are in John chapter 12. And when we were together last, we were looking at the paragraph with the verses in which 
Jesus speaks of glory, and he speaks of his trouble, tribulation. In verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I've come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. And we, we talked about this, uh, this conception of my hour, which is repeated in the Gospel of John. Usually, with Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. That's why he leaves Jerusalem. That's why he, he uh, again, leaves the temple area. He is not going to be arrested. He's not going to be taken into hand then because his hour has not yet come. And that hour clearly means the, uh, the sequence of events that will lead to his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, that tells us something we just need to constantly remind ourselves of. Jesus is not the victim of these events. These uh, events of the passion, the, the arrest, the scourging, the interrogations, all this, Jesus is not victim. He wasn't just finally caught like some kind of outlaw. My hour has now come, meaning that he's finally been caught. No. As Jesus will say, no man takes my life from me. I lay my life down willingly for the sheep. So he's not going to allow that to happen until all has been fulfilled and everything is ready. And he is told by the Father that it's the right time. Now, that's something else to remember. Jesus doesn't determine when his hour comes. Jesus will say again in a different context, he, uh, of the hour of his return, he doesn't know. Oh, what does that mean? Well, it means it, it is the Father's sovereign prerogative. It's the Father's sovereign privilege. And uh, Jesus knows from the Father that his hour has now come. And his heart is troubled. We talk about tribulation and, and the, the, the fact that's a very honest word. Uh, the the, the uh, Yiddish word for this is suris. Uh, it's, a, it's a good Jewish word you'd, you'd hear in a Jewish community. It's, a, it's stress and tribulation, heart, trouble. Uh, but in this case, this isn't Yiddish, this is Greek. And coming from the Aramaic, Jesus is saying that he is troubled. And of course he's troubled because he, he knows what is coming. His entire earthly ministry has been building up to this point. And so you have Jesus speaking to the Father. Now, there's no indication that anyone other than the Father heard these words of Jesus. Now, it may be that John heard them, and that's how we have them here. It may be that the Holy Spirit gave them to John subsequently, but Jesus is speaking to the Father. But as he speaks, he says, Father, glorify your name. And, and then we're told that voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Okay, so there's a voice that speaks. This has happened before, the baptism of Jesus early in his ministry. In fact, in the inauguration of his earthly ministry. Now, now a voice comes again, and, uh, and it's the voice of God. Therefore, it sounds like thunder. In fact, some people say it, it, is, it is thunder. And, and others, hearing the voice, say it's an angel. And that's another good reminder to us that angels aren't, you know, Little boys with wings flying around, they are the messengers of God. They're not infants. They're soldiers. That's why they have to tell the shepherds on the hillside on the night of Jesus' birth, when they come, fear not, for we bring you good tidings of great joy. Because when you see angels, it generally 
is not good news. Read the Old Testament. Now, for us, it's, it's good news, but it's because we're united to Christ. But, but just a human being, when an angel shows up, not good. And, and, and thus, you'll notice that the, the thunder of the voice, there are people who said, an, an, an angel must be it, or uh, it was merely thunder. But, but Jesus answers them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Fascinating statement. What, what does Jesus mean? Uh, well, it's another confirm, confirmation. It's another confirming act of the Father confirming the Son. And, and, and what Jesus means by that will become clear to the disciples after the sequence of events begins later that will lead to the crucifixion and resurrection. It all makes sense to them in retrospect. Again, the very good thing for us to understand. All of our lives are understood best in retrospect, right? God's plan for our lives, we, we, we don't know what it means for 20 years from now, but we can look back and, understood and understand what it meant 20 years ago. Uh, we can see how the Lord guided our lives and, and, and how the Lord moved us here and, and how the Lord... Uh, intervened there and, and, and gave us direction here, but we're not good looking forward. The disciples understood these things better looking back. And, and again, we have this over and over again. After, after the crucifixion, things become clear to them. After the resurrection, things become clearer to them. After the ascension, things become yet clearer to them. They now understand what Jesus meant when Jesus said this, or what Jesus meant when he said that. Jesus said, this voice isn't for me, but it's for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What a massive verse. And we tend to break it apart wrongly. Listen to the sequence again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The latter part of that saying is far better known to most Christians than the first part. But the first part is earth-shattering. It's history-shattering. This now is a huge now. So if you're thinking about the entirety of the Gospel of John, and, and, and you think, well, where, where's the turning point? Where's the hinge? Well, the hinge is actually, arguably, right here. And, and notice what Jesus says. It, things are now ready. His hour has come. What does this hour mean? What, 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 what would we say is the reason why Jesus has come, and, and what is the judgment that he is bringing? Notice his words so carefully. This, now this... Judgment is come. Now is the judgment of this world. Judgment beginning. So when we talk about why Jesus came in the incarnation, you know, we, uh, we, we, we just had Christmas, it seems like, uh, eight years ago. It was actually just a few weeks ago. Weeks ago. Uh, when we had Christmas, we talked about the meaning of the incarnation. The Christians were in constant conversation about the meaning of the incarnation. Why did Jesus come? He came to save his people from their sins. Yes, can't be wrong, has to be absolutely right. He, he came to save. He came to save his people from their sins, okay? Good. So here he says that as his hour is come, 
Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, okay? Well, you know the flow of biblical history. You know the, the biblical storyline. You, you know four major divisions, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. You know, we're headed from, from Genesis to Revelation through this flow, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So we know we're looking for that kingdom of Christ in its fullness to come. We know that Jesus is coming again, and he's coming in judgment, right? He's coming in power, and he's coming in judgment. He's going to, as the book of Revelation says, he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's going to strike down all iniquity, and, 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 and the beast will be thrown into the abyss. Satan will be defeated. And that's not yet. We're standing here in the year 2020, and behind us is the hour of Christ that has come. Let's just say roughly 2,000 years behind us is that hour. Before us, we know not how long before us, but we have to assume in some sense it could be instantaneously now with the blinking of an eye. It, it will be when all things are fulfilled in ways that we cannot yet perceive. Jesus is coming, and, and he's not coming this time as a baby in Bethlehem. He's coming as a king on a white horse. But here, Jesus, when he's speaking about the fact that his hour has come, I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're not careful, it kind of sounds to us like it's that second hour rather than the first hour, right? Because here he isn't talking about saving sinners from their sin. Instead, he says that because his hour has come, he says now is the judgment of this world. Now. Now is the judgment of this world. Hmm. Well, look at the book of Revelation. Just think about the judgment that is to come. Think of the great white throne judgment. Think about the division of all humanity. After all have been raised, all will be judged. And those whose names are written in the book shall go with Christ into his kingdom. They shall enter into everlasting life. Whereas those whose names are not written in the book of life, they shall be cast into the lake of fire. But that's not that's not John chapter 13. It doesn't come right away. What's the point? The point is that everything needful for everything that Christ would fulfill and do for eternity, it is all sufficiently concentrated in the events that are about to happen. When is Satan defeated? Now, you know how to answer this, but understand how it's even more consistent than you may have thought. When is Satan defeated? He's defeated when Christ dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. I mean, you say, but even, even so, Satan roams to and fro, seeking whom he may devour, the deceiver. Yes, and you know that there is there's this period of time. Jesus refers to it, interestingly, it's a little while, in a little while, in a little while. The history we're living in is in that little while. In a little while, I guess, the span of eternity. We're waiting for the full manifestation and revelation of those things. But if we're not careful, what we say is, okay, the, 
the passion and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, that's for our salvation. Christ's return is for judgment. No. The cross is judgment. The empty tomb is judgment. When he speaks about the hour that has come, and, uh, and he uses the now language, is now, now judgment has come. Now, the thing is, Satan has to know this. But Jesus says it openly. Satan is here. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So there's a statement of, of judgment. And then in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. High and lifted up and shall be exalted. Let's look at John chapter 3. Remember, it's just a few chapters back, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. Look at verses 13 and following. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lifted up. So the prophet Isaiah saw this lifting up. Jesus spoke of himself being lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the bronze servant there in the wilderness. And now he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Well, there we are. In John chapter 3, what was Jesus talking about? It's a a beautiful illustration of biblical typology. And the New Testament reveals this kind of typology in the Old Testament. We have to be careful that we do not over-typologize, which is to say we we could, like some of the early Christians, we could go pretty wild with allegory. This means this, this means that, that means that. Be very restrained, but we understand we understand the typology specifically because we're told what it is, and, and when we're told what it is, well, then we know what it is. So you'll recall that when Israel was in the wilderness, they were in a wilderness filled with venomous serpents, asps, and adders and cobras, vipers. The bite of these snakes was almost invariably fatal because, of course, there was no antivenin. And these snakes were far more widespread there in that wilderness than you might imagine. The, the, the snakes are actually quite, a, quite made for the desert. And the, the things that tend to exist in the desert are, uh, are bugs and birds, some kinds of birds, and rodents. And uh, those who eat the rodents are the snakes. And there are lots of them. Israel is told that it will be given this gift. It's a bronze serpent. 
And that bronze serpent is to be set up on a staff, and any child of Israel who is bitten by one of these venomous snakes, if he or she looks up to that bronze serpent on that staff, they'll be saved. They won't die of the snake bite. Now, Jesus picks that up. Isn't that interesting? You know, you think, well, what, 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 what is that bronze serpent? You know, it's a, that's a good thing. If you're in a place swarming with venomous snakes, it's a very good thing to have that bronze serpent. And I think I want my tent pretty close to it. I want to be able to look up and see that bronze serpent. But the bronze serpent is lifted up. Jesus, in speaking of himself being lifted up, and he's speaking of his crucifixion here clearly, he, he speaks to the bronze serpent. That's what he told Nicodemus. And, and as he's lifted up, as the Son of Man is lifted up, it's about salvation. Not just from a venomous bite, but it was salvation from sin. And, and that's where he continues. And, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, as we've seen, we want to be careful and understand when Jesus says all people, it's not a statement that all will be saved, but there will be people from all peoples who are saved, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And, and it is one unified atoning act, and that is about what is to happen. He said this, we're told in verse 33, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, again, they probably didn't get it here. They, they probably didn't understand that then, but they would have understood it in retrospect. Okay, that's what Jesus is talking about when he said, I must be lifted up. But John tells us that's why he told the crowd, and that's why he told all those listening, so that they would, they would hear. And then in verse 34, so the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So it's an interesting question. The, the, the crowd, here's another little thing for us to understand. So the crowds were not just crowds. Remember, they're Jewish crowds. Now, there's some non-Jewish people who sometimes show up there, like the Greeks who came seeking Jesus just a few verses earlier. But, but whenever there's a crowd, the crowd is either exclusively or overwhelmingly Jewish. And Remember that the, the Jewish people are a scriptural people, and so they've been hearing the Torah and the prophets read for their entire lives, and, and, and so they've got biblical knowledge. That's good. A biblical knowledge is always good. But hearing the scriptures in one sense and, and believing them in another sense or understanding them, those, those can be different things. And Yet, they're drawing from their own biblical knowledge. Notice that they hear Jesus talk about being lifted up, the Son of Man being lifted up. But actually, Jesus doesn't say in that statement, look at it carefully in verse 35, excuse me, verse 32. He doesn't say, and when the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all people to himself. No, in this case, it's I. He doesn't say Son of Man, he says I. But if you're listening, he's putting himself in Isaiah 53. So they know the Bible. They're thinking Isaiah 53. And uh, well, in this case, excuse me, Isaiah 52.13. They're thinking Isaiah 52.13. 
about the Son of Man, and Jesus says about himself, when I am lifted up. And, and so they understand he's claiming to be the Son of Man, and you know this because they say it. Notice what they say. We have heard from the law that the Christ, remain, the Messiah, the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Okay, boy, it could, we could just pass right by this as if we haven't just seen a big collision. There's a big collision right there. Or you might say there's a leap of logic right there. It happens to be a correct leap of logic. The, the crowd understands more than we thought they did. N notice what they do here. They speak of one individual as son of man and Christ. They're speaking of Jesus, of the Jesus who said, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people unto me. And, and then they, they, they ask him about the Christ reigning forever, and they ask him about the Son of Man being lifted up. Now, that's astounding. Don't, just, don't jump over that, because they've actually put these two things together. They, they, and, and, and this is something that is rare. Remember that there are only really two places in, in the New Testament where we have these facets of Christ's person and work put together. We have the angels, as we saw, speaking to the shepherds, and they said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's, that's put together, declared to the angels. Shepherds heard that. And then when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter says it. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He will say something very similar in John chapter 6. So Christ, Son of the living God. And, and remember, Jesus said, yeah, you didn't come up with this, Simon. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it's a, it's a revealed knowledge. But now the crowd is putting together Christ, Messiah. Remember, this is the one who, who is promised to reign on King David's throne forever. King. And then Son of Man, the suffering servant of Isaiah. The crowd puts them together. Fascinating question. This isn't a stupid question. This is a very smart question. The crowd actually shows up asking a smart question. Because the Messiah has been promised to reign on David's throne forever. Well, a crucifixion, and they catch on to what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, or, 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 or him being lifted up in this way, that, that's, that's not what they were expecting of the Messiah. The Messiah is going to reign on David's throne forever. True or false? True. To us, or at least to the crowd, Jesus speaking of his crucifixion meant you're not the Christ who's going to reign on David's throne forever. We don't understand this. And then, and then the Son of Man, you know, how, do you, how do you put all of this together? That's what they're saying. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. It's very beautiful. 
Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, gosh, you guys, you connect two dots and you can't get any further. He, he doesn't say that at all. He says, uh, just, just, just realize that right now the light is with you. Speaking of himself, Jesus, who's identifying himself as the light of the world, he says, you know, the light, the light is with you for a little while longer, for a little while longer. In other words, you're going you're to understand these things later, but I'm amongst you right now. And, and then notice how he continues when he says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. It's a common theme, of course, in all the Bible, light versus darkness. It's one of the strongest themes in the Gospel of John. It's right there in the prologue to the Gospel. It's speaking of, of in him was life. And, and, and light, and of John the Baptist said, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness of the light. Then speaking of Jesus, says he was the true light. Light versus darkness is one of the major themes that goes all the way through. Just, just think of, for example, how, John's, how Jesus speaks in the beginning of John chapter 9. When, um, when the, that, this is when they have the healing of the man born blind. And when Jesus is asked by his disciples about it, you remember he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. So there's this light and darkness. You, work, you can work while it's light, but night is coming when no man can work. When Jesus is, is with them, the light of the world is with them. And they're to walk in the light and with the light. For the time is coming when he will not be with them lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What a beautiful, beautiful promise that we may become sons of light, a phrase that will show up later. Sons and daughters of light, the children of light versus the children of darkness. That light darkness Comparison and theme and motif will continue throughout the entire Bible, all the way through the book of Revelation. What's Jesus telling them here? Well, he's telling them, while I'm with you, walk with me. While you have the light, stay with the light. Walk with the light. Believe in the light. It's a fascinating there. As you look at verse 38, 36, believe in the light. I wish they made these numbers bigger. Number 413, no, excuse me, it's five. While you have the light, believe in the light. So light, what, what, what does that mean? Well, if you go back to Genesis... It's the Father who says, let there be light, and there was light. In John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is the agent of the Father's act of creation. He's the Word through whom the worlds were made. He is the light. When the Father says, let there be light, at the end of biblical theology, as you rocket through Scripture, and you end up at the end of the book of Revelation, we are told that in the new Jerusalem there will be no sun and there will be no moon because the Father and the Son are lights. We don't need the sun or the moon anymore. 
Light is a metaphor for revelation. It, it is even in modern secular culture, you know, we say the light goes on. It's, uh, there's a moment of illumination. All of a sudden there's darkness, flip on a light, and then all of a sudden you see. We take this for granted. I was unexpectedly moved when I heard a lecture by Robert Caro, the great biographer of Lyndon Johnson. And if, if you love biography and historical biography, there's no greater monument to the historical biography than the, uh, the volumes written by Robert Caro of Lyndon Johnson. He's, it's, it's a life project, one of the greatest biographical writers of modern times, dedicating virtually his entire life uh, to writing this one great biography. And we're all, those of us who love this uh, series are just, just hoping he lives long enough to finish that last volume. Don't rob us of that last volume. But he was talking in, in this lecture that I got to hear about writing this biography. And he, was, he, was, he actually moved to the hill country of Texas where Lyndon Johnson was from because he's trying to answer the question, why is Lyndon Johnson so revered here? He wasn't revered nationally, but he was revered in the Texas hill country that elected him to Congress at first and was the, the very base of his operations. And so he, he went and he stayed there for, for a couple of years just trying to figure out who was Lyndon Johnson and how did this hill country make him? Well, during the, the Depression and thereafter, when uh, Lyndon Johnson was a, a young man on the make, and uh, he understood politics better than just about anyone else, even as a teenager, a young man in his 20s. And he began working as an aide for con the congressman who was then there, and then he finagled his way into uh, the administration. And uh, anyway, he became the agent that brought rural electrification to the hill country of Texas. That's why he's remembered. He brought electricity to the hill country of Texas. It was one of the hardest places in the country to live. Beautiful, but horribly difficult. Well, he talked to a man. By the way, he talked to many women, and, and the women loved Lyndon Johnson because just getting water for their family and to, to do laundry before electricity was a two-day-a-week operation, just cooking. It was back-breaking labor, just, just the water because of the well system there. Electrical power brought pumps. But I, I'll never forget this little boy. He's a very, very, very old man, but Robert Caro told of talking to this old man about the rural electrification. And he said, well, you know, he said, uh, we all thought it was a lie. He said, I was just a 10-year-old boy. I had a bunch of little brothers and sisters behind me, and my daddy had been killed in the First World War, and so just my mom and these, these children. And he said, we, we didn't have anything except this three-room house out in the middle of nowhere. Couldn't see anybody from our house. He said, they started putting these lines up on poles. And they were there for months and months and stretched over a year. And then someone came and put the, the line from the pole to our house. And then this man came and mama spent everything she could so that they could put these three light bulbs up in the three rooms, the light bulb in the top of each of these rooms. And he said, we, 
We lived in a dark house because whatever those wires were supposed to do, they didn't do. Whatever they're supposed to have, they didn't have. And he said, but mama said, we're going to leave those light switches on so we're going to know when the electricity comes. And he said it was months and months and months. When they were eating this little meal at nighttime in the house with candlelight, when no one heard anything, but the entire house came ablaze. He said, we thought at first it was the end of the world. And then they recognized, no, the lights come on. And you would get emotional if you heard this old man talking. He said, my little brothers and sisters and my mama and I just sat on the table and thanked the Lord and stared at those light bulbs for hours. I mean, we just take it for granted. that This light comes up nowhere. All of a sudden, by the way, he also said, mama got to cleaning. <laughs> light shows all kinds of things. But you know, that's a, that, that's a miracle, isn't it, turning on a light? But what a metaphor for our understanding. We, we are absolutely blind and in the dark. And all of a sudden, the lights turn on. That light's the revelation of God. That, that, that it's the Word of God, which is a light unto our path. It's a lamp. But it's true more than anything else of Christ. The, 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 the Christ who animated the light of Genesis 1, the, the, the Christ who is the light of the world in John chapter 1, the Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, and the Jesus who here, even on the threshold of his death, burial, and resurrection, says, while the light is with you, walk in the light. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And even last night looking at this, I realized what an incredibly evangelistic verse this is. You know, we think of all the evangelistic verses of the Scripture that come to us, and you know, even when you think about the verse we just saw in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. But, but look at this. While you have the light, believe in the light. Wow, I mean, that, that's it, belief and unbelief. That's, uh, that, that's the crucial issue here. The great dividing line in humanity is, is belief and unbelief. And, and, that, and again, we do rocket forward to that judgment that is uh, the great white throne judgment. And, and, and that's the issue. It's, it's belief in Christ. Those who believe in Christ, their names are written in the book of life. They go into the gift of eternal life. Those whose names are not written in the book of life, they're handed over for destruction. Eternal judgment, damnation. Well, you have the light. Believe the light. Belief is just so central. And again, so, so how does one become a Christian? How, how does a sinner come to know salvation? And the New Testament formula is easy. Easy to remember, believe and repent. Believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Here on the threshold of His crucifixion, Jesus is saying, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. 
Now we are told next, when Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. And indeed, this is the the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. First, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53. This is also found in Matthew and Romans, cited concerning Christ. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Hold that. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Now, of course, this is Isaiah 6. It's the famous call passage of Isaiah. This is the passage most Christians remember most for whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And of course, the, the prelude to that is the theophany that Isaiah experiences in the temple. When he goes in the temple, he sees the, high, the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. And here's the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then you have a typological demonstration of salvation. What, what, what does Isaiah know when he perceives and understands the holiness of God? He's a sinner. He's undone, for he's a man of unclean lips. He dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How does he know that? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He didn't say this was not a Jungian, Freudian self-diagnosis that he is a man of unclean lips. He knows he's a man of unclean lips because his eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, and then the seraph goes to the coals, to the altar, and, and, and brings the coals back and touches his lips. Your sins are forgiven. And of course, that's just a, that's a typological promise of what Christ will do. But in Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord makes very clear through Isaiah that there will be unbelief. Then you'll notice the language, it's the language of God's sovereignty here. For he has hardened, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, of course, this comes up again, Matthew chapter 13, when the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? He says, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, and it's Isaiah chapter 6, 9 and following. It says the very same text that comes up here. Okay, so just hold on a minute. Think for a minute. Let's not rush past this. In our closing thoughts this morning about this text, let's ask ourselves, about this unbelief. How does it fit in the flow of the gospel story? How how does it fit in the the flow of the gospel story? Well, think of what we are told in John chapter 1. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. 
but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So what we're told in John chapter 1 is that there's a twofold pattern. It is a, there's a pattern of those who cannot believe and will not believe and do not believe, and that's the majority. That, that's the overwhelming. The first thing said is, for he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him. So there will be those who will believe, but the major response is going to be unbelief and rejection. Now, think again about the flow of the gospel here. Let's imagine it the way that, say, uh, a humanist would imagine it, okay? A, a humanist who thinks human beings are basically good, a humanist who thinks that uh, whatever problems exist amongst humanity are basically rooted in a lack of knowledge or, or, or understanding. And uh, so you, you say a humanist. Well, how, how are you going to render this? Well, the humanist rendering would have the crowds get it, right? I mean, human beings are basically good. They want to understand. They're basically inclined to the good. So when Jesus comes up and says, I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, they go, yeah. But what would not have happened had that been true? There would have been no arrest. There would have been no trial. There would have been no crucifixion. There would have been no salvation. But this is not a divine conjuring trick. The fact is that the humanist is completely wrong about human beings. Spectacularly, fatally, catastrophically flawed. The fact is, not one of us has a primary problem of a lack of knowledge. Romans 1 makes that clear. We have all the knowledge we need. Not one of us, not one human being will be in hell because of misunderstanding. It is rejection of the truth. We are born rejectors of the truth. We, we are, from the moment we draw our first breath, rejectors of the truth. The miracle is not that people do not believe. The miracle is that any do believe. The exception to the rule is those who do believe. And, and so there has to be some explanation about how those who do believe can believe. And the biblical explanation is, it is the grace and mercy of God. And it's God's, it's the operations of God's sovereign will. And, and so when you think about it, this is the doctrine of election. There it is. And, and, and with all the related doctrines of illumination and, and quickening, but this is the, and calling. But this is the doctrine of election. God saves those who believe. But those who believe only believe because God saves them. It's the mystery of salvation. If you can't handle that, you can't handle God. If you can't handle that, you can't handle Romans 9. Just read it. And of course, it's consistent with the rest of Scripture. This is a frightening, frightening doctrine to many people, but it's not the doctrine that sufficiently explains why people are in hell. It's not. The, the doctrine of election is totally misunderstood if it is the doctrine that explains why people end up in hell. Because you don't even need the doctrine of election to explain how everyone ends up in hell. The doctrine of election is the sole explanation of how anyone does not end up in hell. Through God's purpose to save. And Jesus makes that very clear right here. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. 
and I would heal them. And what is Jesus doing? His hour has come. An hour of judgment, but also the hour of healing and salvation. There's a lot more to come. We're having to inch our way through John chapter 12. I think it's a really good way to go. We don't want to miss anything here. We're certainly missing a lot in the sense that there's a plenum in the, the Latin. There's a fullness to Scripture we'll never fully understand until we see him no longer through a glass darkly, but see him face to face. We can never exhaust the study, but what a privilege it is to walk through verse by verse and line by line. Privilege with you. Let's pray the Lord will use this to his glory. Father, we're just so thankful that we were able to look to these verses and with the saints throughout the ages, Christians throughout all the centuries, to hear your word. Father, may your word take residence in our hearts to produce Christ-likeness. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.